Good morning. It's good to have you here to gather and worship with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. We've been making our way through Luke's gospel since June of last year. And uh, Lord willing, we will finish this book before the end of this year. This morning we're going to talk about the future. And there's been a number of predictions in our history. Some have been accurate. Most have not. In 1903, the president of Michigan Savings Bank advised Henry Ford's lawyer not to invest in the Ford Motor Company by saying, the horse is here to stay. The automobile, the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. Earlier before that, in 1876, the president of Western Union, William Orton, dismissed phones as a toy when Alexander Graham Bell offered him to sell a portion of the patent for $100,000. And according to a magazine article, Orton wrote an internal memo stating, the idea is idiotic on the face of it. Furthermore, why would any person want to use this ungainly and impractical device when he can send a messenger to the telegraph office and have a clear written message sent to any large city in the United States? Why, why wouldn't he? And what about smartphones in 2007 when Apple introduced the iPhone? CEO of Microsoft, Steve Ballmer, said, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. He was wrong. In 1946, Daryl Zanuck said in a prediction about the TV, television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Yeah, that one is funny. How about this? 1950, Associated Press writer Dorothy Rowe used what she called scientific evidence to predict that by the year 2000, all women would be six feet tall. Her proportions, she said, would be perfect because science will produce a perfectly balanced ration of vitamins, proteins, and minerals that will produce the maximum bodily efficiency and the minimum of fat. In 1966, Time published an essay called The Futurist that looked ahead to life in the year 2000. Quote, remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will flop because women like to get out of the house, like to handle the merchandise, like to be able to change their minds. But few predictions have been as swiftly and disastrously disproven as that of Civil War General John Sedgwick at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. On May 9th, 1864, Sedgwick was leading the Union Six Corps near the Confederate left flank when rebel sharpshooters began opening fire on his men from a distance of 1,000 yards. Sedgwick noticed several of his troops taking cover in the rifle pits and going to the ground, and he began teasing them, saying, what will you do when they open fire along the whole line? I am ashamed of you. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And then one of his soldiers told him that dodging Shells had once saved his life, and the general laughed at him and mocked him and, and said, all right, my man, go to your place. And moments later, Cedric was struck in the head by a sharpshooter's bullet, fell to the ground, and died almost instantly. Predictions can be accurate. Most times, they're seriously flawed. When we knew the smartphone was going to be introduced, we didn't know that at that point we would hold it and watch college football on a Saturday and not need a TV any longer. Knowing the future is hard for us as people who only live in the present. But Jesus foretold the future and he was always right. 
he was sweepingly accurate when he spoke, and he spoke with certainty. In this passage this morning, Jesus will tell the future, and he's going to prepare his disciples to live in light of that future. And the the main thrust, it seems, of Jesus' message is to warn people to be ready. That's the message, to be ready. Be ready, be prepared for the future. And Luke is going to give us a few areas of preparedness. So here's my main idea. Here's the main thrust of the sermon this morning. Prepared disciples choose forgiveness, have faith to obey, display gratefulness, and have hope in their future. Prepared disciples choose forgiveness, have faith to obey, display gratefulness, and have hope in their future. Before we begin in in Luke 17, we need to set the stage a little bit how we got here. It's been a number of weeks since we've been in Luke's gospel, so why is Jesus talking like this? Well, we've walked through Luke 15 and Luke 16 a number of weeks ago, and in that, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, but at the same time, um, teaching his disciples of what it would look like. They knew enough, at least the Pharisees, to look for the Messiah, but they're rejecting Jesus. And so he continues to, to deal with them, but preparing his disciples of what life will look like when he's gone. And he's continued to be dead set on getting to Jerusalem. We saw that in Luke 9.51 is that first movement when Jesus turns to head to Jerusalem. And along the way, as, he, as he's headed there, he's going to prepare his disciples and what life will look like without him. So there's four points I want to cover this morning. Being prepared entails forgiveness. Being prepared entails having faith to obey. Being prepared entails gratefulness. And last, being prepared entails having hope in their future. So, number one here, the first four verses in Luke chapter 17. Luke begins this passage with the first level of preparedness, and it's dealing with sin. Look at verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that, they should, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. When it came to sin, Jesus was a realist to know that in a fallen world, people would always be tempted. He knew that temptations were sure to come. A temptation is a lure, a bait, an enticement to trap you. But the word used here for temptations refers to anything really that's a stumbling block, something that causes you to fall. But there's really something worse than being tempted to sin, and it's being the one in whom you tempt others to sin. And how can we tempt others to sin? We do it when our attitudes and complaining spirits cause others to be discontent. We do it when we gossip and slander of others, which influences their opinion of of another. We do it when we carry an argument to the point when we provoke someone else to be angry. We do it when we entice someone to sexual sin. We do it when we boast of our accomplishments and our stuff that we just bought and, and it causes someone to be envious. Jesus is so serious about this that he tells of a horrendous consequence to those that tempt others to sin. He says that having a large millstone tied to their neck and you're tossed in the sea is better. It's it's better for this to happen than to tempt others to sin. He said it's, it's better to die this horrific death than to bring disaster on one of his children. Nothing enrages Jesus as someone who's trying to pry his child out of his hand. 
Nothing infuriates God more than someone who causes another to turn away from him in sin rather than to turn in godliness and follow. As Christians, we're, we're free to do many things. But what Paul describes in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 is that sometimes our freedom can be used to hurt others or even tempt others to sin. Friends, there is a law higher than the law of freedom, and it's the law of love. And in the church family, believers, disciples of Jesus, should be living responsibly and considerate of others, to put others first, to think of them more quickly than we think of ourselves. There is something more important than our freedoms in this world, and it's to love one another, especially in the church. And we need to be reminded this morning as we stare at these verses that we, we do it, what we do in our lives doesn't just affect us in our life, it affects our community, those that we live around. It's better for the disciple, for the leader, for the pastor to die than to teach errant doctrine or to abuse someone or to lead someone else to sin. It's better to be removed from earth than to have a lifestyle that trips others up or attitudes that drives people away from Jesus. And so we need to pay attention to how we live our lives, friends. Jesus is very serious here. Jesus' words may seem harsh, that he's coming down hard against sin, and so we need to pay attention. We need to watch ourselves. We need to watch our teaching. We need to watch our leadership. We need to watch our attitudes. We need to watch what we post on Facebook and what we reveal about ourselves on Instagram and all social media. But not just ourselves and be concerned with ourselves. No, Jesus moves to our brothers and sisters in the Lord and how we should respond to them. Look at verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves, and then if your brother sins, rebuke him. Love for one another requires the ability to rebuke one another in love. We should look to rebuke, which means to reprove, to warn, to admonish. It doesn't mean to tell someone off. It doesn't mean to ream them out. That's not what he's saying here. It means to tell them the wrong they have done. To rebuke means to show them their sin. It must be done in love. Friend, if you really enjoy rebuking others, I'm afraid you probably shouldn't be doing it right now. You should probably pause. And, and you should ask the Lord to help you, that you would have appropriate love and how to help them follow Jesus. But we should also, as, as members of this body, be able to receive a rebuke from someone else. If you're not prepared to hear a rebuke, you're probably not ready to rebuke others. And you have some work to do by asking the Lord to give you love for others. But most of us tend to go the other way. Most of us choose to say nothing. We, we tend to live in a comfortable, culpable silence. But friends, Jesus gives us no other options. We're to rebuke when your fellow Christians are sinning, and we're to do it in love. And then we need to go courageously and gently and humbly and affectionately and most definitely prayerfully. But we do need to go to one another. A sin needs to be called a sin in a way that it leads the one to repentance. Our church covenant states this. 
we will walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church to exercise affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. And so when you agree to be a member of this church, you're signing up for lovingly rebuking, admonishing one another. And the goal should always be repentance. Not to win, not to show them how wrong they are. It's repentance. And then Jesus says, he continues on, he says, and if he repents, what should you do? Forgive him. And it takes faith in God to forgive someone over and over. This world doesn't understand the Christian's view of forgiveness. To absorb a wrong is foreign to our flesh. We, we naturally want vengeance. We, we want to get even. But because of what Christ has done, we can forgive others. And the power to forgive others always comes back to what Christ has done for us. And the only way we can truly move on with forgiveness is looking at and remembering freshly the gospel of what Christ has done to forgive us in our sin. And then we keep on forgiving as Jesus continues. Look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We don't have an out. And I know this might be hard for some, but Jesus' words are clear. If repentance is there, we don't have an option. We forgive. But what about their repentance? It, it doesn't seem genuine. What do we do then? Friend, you forgive and you leave it in God's hands. If there's no repentance, you should pray for the Lord to bring it to their minds so that they would repent. But we're not under obligation to forgive. But you should be on the lookout for bitterness that would build up in your heart. But if your brother or sister sins against you and turns to you in repentance, Jesus says you must forgive. I, we know that, we, I've heard the stories, I've talked to many here, the extreme and difficult and even painful opportunities that we've been given when some comes and sins against us and they repent and how hard that is to forgive. When someone has hurt you deeply, giving up your right to be angry and vengeful can seem like another violation. But living this out is one of the ways that we display the power of the gospel. Now, our problem with Jesus' words here, friends, though, is that we are too often afraid to rebuke or too harsh when we are doing it, and we're too resentful to forgive. And you know what happens to a church, to the people that Jesus purchased on the cross when we don't obey these verses? A church begins to look exactly like the world. When sin goes unchecked, unrepented of, and when, it's un, and it's, when it is repented of, we don't forgive. Friends, if, if we neglect this teaching, our church will look just like the culture. We won't be distinct any longer. And do we want a church to be spiritually healthy? Then we need to work at this, to obey Jesus' words here. Our Christian life together as the body of Christ here at Edgewood, as members of this body, demands guts and goodness, nothing less. If we won't lovingly rebuke and we won't graciously forgive, then we are no better than the world. 
We are no different. And the power to rebuke, the power to forgive another comes from Jesus Christ, who gave us this ability through his death on the cross. So that's point number one. Second, we need to be prepared entails having faith to obey, verses 5 through 10. So maybe you read those verses or heard me read them, and and you thought to yourself, the Lord is going to have to help me to do this. I don't think I can do this. I don't know if I can forgive like that. I don't know if if I can rebuke someone else. I I don't like confronting others. And the same concern, it seems to be, in the minds of of these followers. Look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. His, his illustration of a tree and a seed, he's, he's saying that a small amount of faith can move a tree into the ocean. So surely, with even a smaller faith like a mustard seed, you can rebuke and you can forgive your brother and sister. See, Christians are distinguished not by the quantity of their faith, but the employment of their faith. It's not the greatness or smallness of your faith. Friends, it's the object of your faith. And if we're too concerned in analyzing or scrutinizing our faith, we, we step into danger of neglecting the object of our faith. And so we should pause um, before we echo the request that's made here in verse 5. Because a, a request for increased faith could be viewed as unfaithful, of forgetting the one we have faith in. And what makes all the difference is the object of our faith, not the quantity of faith. And who is the object of our faith? This is the Sunday school answer, friends. Who is the object of our faith? Yes, Jesus. He's the object of our faith. Jesus Christ. And and biblical faith looks back to the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And we see that every one of his promises have been fulfilled. But faith also looks forward to the return of the Son of Man when all of the promises of God will be fulfilled completely. And faith grabs hold of what God has done and what he says he will do and lives ready to glorify him. I've heard it said before, faith is not simply believing in God, it's believing God. And faith is the key to living a prepared life. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I wonder how all this sounds to you. As Christians, we do not believe that we can earn our way into heaven or, or earn a relationship with God. We do not believe or teach that. The gospel message, our, our news is this. We are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ who, took, who, who died for us and took our punishment upon himself. And only when we believe and trust in Jesus Christ Will he apply to our hearts that perfect righteousness and forgiveness that he won for us on the cross? And the point is never what you do. The point is what God has done. The point is for him to get the glory. We do not fight our way into heaven by faithful, religious obedience. It is God who in his great love in Jesus Christ reached down low to find you. And in this tremendous love, he picked you up in Christ and he holds you up for the entire world to see as a testimony, not your greatness, but his greatness and his love by redeeming you. And so Jesus, and I say all this because Jesus turns to now our responsibility. 
to serve God and doing our service. But he's going to say it's not, it's not our service and our obedience that garners more favor with him. And so he asks three rhetorical questions here in verses 7 through 10. Look at verse 7 and I'll answer as we walk through here. Verse 7, will, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Well, the answer is no. Verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Yes. And then verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No. And then the application of verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And what he's saying, the master was not there to serve the servant, but the other way around. A servant who excels at serving is still only a servant and does not earn the right to become the master. Now, maybe this sounds ridiculous, but possibly a human analogy might help us understand what Jesus is saying here. Which of you, when you get home from a driving trip in your car, get out of your vehicle and say thank you to your battery for providing consistent starts? Or praise the headlights for shining the way? Or encourage the tires for keeping the air inside? Or cheering on the brake fluid for doing such a wonderful job? You wouldn't do that, right? I don't want to put you on the spot, maybe if you do. Why don't we do that? because that's simply what the car is made to do performed that way. It's, it's made to drive. It's made to serve in that way. And neither does a servant, God's servant, get special credit for doing what he was commanded and made to do. We are made to serve the creator. We don't earn more favor by doing that service. The same is true in our relationship with God. But many in our world take the opposite approach. They, they think that all the things they do for God amounts to gaining more and more favor with him. To gain a higher standing. They're like the elder brother in Luke 15. This is what the Pharisees thought. This is the, the mode of religion that they had. But God doesn't owe us anything. And if this sounds harsh, friends, it's because of the selfish pride that flows through our hearts, believing that we have actually done something for God that he couldn't do himself. In fact, we can even secretly hope that the good things we do will garner a little extra love or blessing from God. But even if we, if we had done everything he ever wanted us to do and we haven't, even then it would just be our duty. God is not moved by our obedience. Not our best works moves the hand of God. When it comes to our service for him, God never gets a positive return on his investment in us. He is creator, and we're always lacking. But, friends, we need to understand this. This makes the gospel even sweeter to our ears. It's not by our works that we're saved. It's by his grace. It's not by earning more favor, by doing and, and obeying that God now is more in love with us. It's only by his grace. We don't earn our relationship to him, and we can't unearn our relationship with him. 
It's by grace that we're saved. And so, Christian, we need to learn to rest in him, not in ourselves. Well, third, and I need to keep moving because it's a long chapter. Third, we need to be prepared, which entails gratefulness. Verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village, and he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. At the beginning of verse 11, this is Luke's way of reminding the reader that Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. He's still on his way towards his passion, towards the cross. And, and as he's going that way, he's still very much aware of the lost as he's ministering from town to town. But let me ask you a question here. Are you a grateful person? Are you a grateful person? Are you quick to say thank you? You know, we teach our kids this, don't we? As a regular response, we desire our kids to be properly trained and to teach them to be aware of their surroundings and, and what transpires in front of them. We teach them to say thank you when someone gives something to them or what they do, something for them. But do we as adults, do we lose that practice? How about in your relationship to God? How after you to be grateful, to respond in thankfulness to him? I believe it's true today that never have people had so much in this world and yet been so ungrateful. Oz Guinness, written, writing in this commentary on Romans 12.1, has a sober reminder. He says that rebelling against God does not begin with clenched fist of atheism, but with self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. Ungratefulness is a disease that is rampant in our culture today. But to be ready for Christ, we, need, we must display gratefulness. When Jesus enters his village, he's met by these lepers, and they, they cry out because they can't get close to him. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. The command was to, was to, uh, to, to, to do what, what cured a leper would, would uh, follow the Leviticus 14 laws of after the, the cleansing, they would need to get evaluated by a priest, be examined by a priest. And so they turn and leave to do this in, in obedience to Jesus' word. But as Luke says, only one then realizes what happens and turns back. Jesus didn't need to touch them to heal him. He only spoke at a distance, telling them to, to follow the regulations now. But as they went, meaning it was instant, they were all healed. Friends, this is a mass healing. There's no mirrors, though, to see their change. They, they only had each other to see each other. And right away, they realize what's happened. But as we find out in Luke's story, only one turns back. Only one was seized with an irresistible emotion of gratitude and then he races back to give thanks to Jesus. 
And what spontaneous gratitude we see, putting off, going to the temple to rush back and see Jesus. You know, it's a delight to see one returned. And he did, and the distance between him and Jesus was now greatly minimized. The the alienation was removed. He was now cleansed. And his grateful recognition of God's power brought him back to praise and worship of the one who made him whole. Most likely, he realized in that moment that Jesus was king. Jesus was who he said he was. And he recognized God's power in him. And he had to say thank you. What about the other nine? It seems they're caught up with their new lease on life, their new wholeness, and they don't return to Jesus. Now, instead, they're eager to get back to life. They can work now. I mean, this is revolutionary to their life. They can work. They can be by their family. They're no longer ostracized. They want to get life like it once was. They want it back. But the Samaritan... He knew he needed more. And his heart wells up in thankfulness. Which one would you be? Are you more like the Samaritan in your heart or the other nine? See, the nine are so earthbound that they miss the kingdom, they miss the Savior. They're so satisfied with getting life back that they miss Jesus. They want earth. Earth is enough. And they miss salvation. Because as you see here, the Samaritan didn't only receive physical healing, he received spiritual healing. He received more than a new lease on earthly life he received eternal life. In verse 19, he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus uses the same phrase here as he did earlier in Luke 7.50 when the woman was, the sinful woman was healed. And then in Luke 8.48 with the woman with the hemorrhage. And, and, and the Samaritan here, and then later in chapter 18, he uses this same phrase, which means salvation. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made, has saved you. You're saved. His faith made him well. Jesus redeems him. Not only did physical leprosy fall away, but his fatal spiritual leprosy fell from the Samaritan spirit. He received forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life in the removal of all alienation and distance between God and himself in that moment. But the nine, the nine stay away, simply happy to have physical healing while eternally lost. You know, these nine are are like the crowds that we read in the Gospels where Jesus feeds them, you know, crowds of 5,000, and and they're just happy to have food. They have fish and bread. They're just happy for the next display of, of miracles. They find comfort in things on earth, and they miss Jesus. But this Samaritan sees who he is. 
And because of the faith that he has, he's saved. It's, I read this week of Charles Spurgeon who was sharing the gospel with a very talkative woman who was beginning to understand the good news. And, and she burst out, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if Christ saves me, he will never hear the end of it. And she spoke beyond her understanding in that moment. Because such praise will be the eternal occupation of the redeemed. This is what we'll do for the rest of eternity. When was the last time God heard from you gratefulness for your salvation? Are you more like the Samaritan or the nine? See, all of God's gifts are meant to lead us to the person who is the supreme gift to all men. It is strange behavior to take God's good gifts and then ignore God. And I pray as a church we'd be more like the Samaritan than the other nine. Being prepared to be grateful for what God has done for us. Well, last is we need to be prepared, which entails hope in their future. Look at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. See, the Pharisees' question here can be a great teaching moment for us. They, they can tell us that it's possible to be concerned with the kingdom, but then to ignore the king. It's possible to be so fascinated with last things while neglecting the first thing, Jesus Christ. And so they asked the Pharisees, verse 20, when the kingdom of God would come, and the kingdom of God is, is the reign of God is what they mean. It means different things to different people, but generally it conjures up images of peace and freedom and prosperity. And, and, and really what we've seen through the Pharisees in Luke's gospel is they really want earthly stability. They want... They want freedom. They don't want a king. And Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Like many things that God does, the kingdom will not come the way people expect it will. The Pharisees thought it would come in special signs or looking for, for fanfare and pomp and circumstance. And many people in the church expect the same things today. They might see the spiritual chaos and decide that they need a political solution, that the government will come fix the problems, that the Supreme Court will, will come fix all, all the wrongs and bring in the kingdom, or people speculate, speculate about the end times prophecy in the Bible and read the newspaper, not for the news, but for the signs and what's coming next, to gain that insider's edge, to have a special or secret knowledge of the end about the kingdom. Friends, be careful that this is you. This is what the Pharisees were looking for. This is what they wanted. But this is not what Jesus had promised. The kingdom was right in front of them. God in the midst of you. This verse has been translated a few different ways, but whether it reads that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or within you or within your grasp, the point is effectively the same. God is here in Jesus Christ. And all that we need to know about God's kingdom is found in Christ. The kingdom was standing in their midst in the person and work of Jesus. And the irony 
here, friends, is huge. Because they arrogantly and unknowingly asking the kingdom's king, indeed the king of kings, when his kingdom would come, and Jesus is like, look, I'm here. And they miss it. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This passage looks forward, not backwards. And he's looking towards the future. But something must happen first. His death on the cross. First suffering, then glory. Remember, that's always the pattern that we see in the scriptures. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus always viewed the kingdom through the lens of the crucifixion and the resurrection. In order to establish the kingdom of his grace, he, had, he first had to die for sinners, taking upon himself the judgment our sins deserved. Therefore, if people were looking for the kingdom of God, the first thing they would see is Christ crucified. But then he continues in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. And what he's saying here is life was carrying on like normal. Life carried on like normal in Noah's day. Life carried on like normal in Lot's day. Eating and drinking, being married, starting lives. Likewise, in the days of Lot, buying and selling, planting and building. None of those activities are evil, friends. It's not sin. They're carrying on life as normal, and they're not prepared. They're absorbed in their own interest. They're living a secular life. And they're not ready. You know, the same thing happened 20 years ago yesterday, right? Have you spent time this weekend reading the stories, watching the news of what transpired in New York City and in Washington, D.C. 20 years ago yesterday? When you read about it or watch a show, they always set the stage that it was just an ordinary day in September. And you see video of the beautiful skies, in fact, I remember I was, you do this, right? You think of where you were. I was in Old Testament prophets class. And my teacher came in to start the class and said, it was such a beautiful day. I was in West Virginia. And he said he was watching Good Morning America. And the host said, it was so beautiful in New York that it would be a great day to go to the top of the World Trade Center and see the city. The day started as normal. People got up, they got dressed. They headed to work. It was a Tuesday. Parents dropping their kids off at school, riding the subway to work, checking their email, preparing for the next meeting. It was normal life. And none of them knew what terror was about to strike or that many of them would lose their, lose their lives. 
They didn't know that their coworker wouldn't come back to work or that the loved one wouldn't come home. They didn't see it coming. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that the same thing will happen when he comes back in judgment. People will be living life, going to work, flying for vacation, going to the doctor for a checkup, and the end will be here. Just like in the days of Noah and Lot, eating and marrying and selling and building, it was not their sin, as, if, as great it was, that damned them to destruction. It was their indifference. They were so preoccupied with normal life that they rarely had a thought above the mundane. Their sights were not set on the future. They were comfortable in the present. Verse 29, but on the day when Lot went up from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. The thunder and lightning of divine judgment will strike without warning right in the middle of daily life. People will be shopping. They'll be stuck in traffic. They're taking out the trash or reading a book and they'll be overcome by the wrath of God towards sin. And when judgment comes, they won't have time to run inside and get cover. And so Jesus is simply saying, I want you to understand this, in the context of what he's saying. Jesus is saying that we're, we're not to become too attached to this world. We need to be prepared. Like if a fire were to break out in your house, you wouldn't go into the Savior stuff. He's warning you not to be too attached to the things of this world. And you know what the linchpin of this entire section of, of why I'm convinced is to be saying, look at verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? When Sodom was burning behind her under the wrath of Almighty God, she looked back longing for the goods and the activities and the life that she reluctantly left behind. She loved her life and her stuff more than God, and so she looked back. She couldn't imagine existence without her possessions. And Jesus is telling us this morning, remember Lot's wife. Remember her. Her story is one of the saddest in all the Bible. She was almost saved, Spurgeon said, but not quite. And Jesus is pressing us here in the right way to look at our affections. Yahweh's agents could try to get Mrs. Lot out of Sodom, but they couldn't get Sodom out of Mrs. Lot. She looked back and she died. Almost saved, but not quite. And how tragic to end up like her. And the point of this is to be ready. That's the point. Look at verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. 
This is one of the strange paradoxes of the gospel. If we try to save our lives, meaning we try to save our position in life, all of our possessions in this world, we'll end up losing life itself. But when we give ourselves away, committed to living our entire life, nothing hidden, all for Jesus Christ, then we will keep our lives forever. And people in this world will call us crazy to forgo all the world has to offer. But friends, we get heaven. We get God. And Jesus is teaching us that to let go of the world's possessions allows us to grab hold and tight of him. And he's worth it. He's worth it, friends. To put our faith and trust in him and not in this world. And the constant hedging of one's life with things and homes and investments and retirements all those things can dissuade us from trusting in Christ alone. And friends, don't let it. Trust in him alone. Remember Lot's wife. Richard Baxter said a, a thing a long time ago. He said many things, but one thing he said, there's a great deal of difference between the desires of heaven and a believer and an unbeliever. Have you ever met an unbeliever who thought there was a remote chance there was a place called hell who wouldn't choose heaven over hell? And what Baxter is telling us is that the way a Christian wants heaven is much different than how a non-Christian wants heaven. Intriguing, right? What does he mean here? He says the believer prizes heaven above this world. The unbeliever prizes heaven only over hell. To the ungodly, there is nothing that seems more desirable than this world. And therefore, he only chooses heaven over hell, but not heaven over this world. And therefore, he will not have heaven upon such a choice. And that's what we should be preaching right now. That's what we should be sharing the gospel. If we preach a gospel just to get out of hell, many will say yes. But the gospel is to get us out of this world. All these things that can just fill us with contentment, but ultimately don't. See, Baxter here is saying exactly what Jesus is saying. If your arms are around all your stuff, if your arms are around your crops, if the place that you really belong in this world, then you will get it and you won't get heaven. And Jesus is saying to us, I want you to be with me. But you can't be with me if you love this world. If you do not love me more than you love this world, and if you do not trust me, then be ready. He warns them in 34, I tell you in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And these Verses speak of the separation between those who are waiting for his coming and those who are not. A husband will be judged on that day and the wife escapes because of her faith in Jesus. One person taken away in judgment and the other is spared. And then he ends here in verse 37. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
Many have struggled with the, how you interpret this verse, but simply put, it's, it's an easy to locate a corpse when you see a vulture swarming around, right? We understand that in nature what's happening. In the same way, the events surrounding Jesus' return will not be difficult to see. He's saying it won't be hidden. Everyone will see. Everyone will know. And so, friend, are you ready for that day? Don't put that off. Don't put it off till tomorrow. If that were to happen tonight, what would happen to you? Would you be spared or would you be destroyed? Are you ready? Are you too attached to this world? If you say no, and Lord willing, I hope that's the answer, how can we show it? How do we display it in our lives? It should be in our, our words, and our hearts, but it should be displayed in our, in our actions, in our loves, in our priorities, in our time. We should be ready. I was reminded this week of Luke's earlier passage in chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. In light of our future, in light of what Jesus has told us this morning, what will happen, how will we live right now? We need to be ready, friends. Christ is coming back at any moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that warns us and comforts us and prepares us for our future. We know that whatever you said would happen will happen. So we ask that you would help us to live in light of what your word says, being ready at any moment to enter into your presence. And God, we do pray for those seated with us that have given no thought of their future, who are presently in this moment not prepared. God, would you save them by your grace this morning? And would they trust in you alone? Would they place their faith solely in you and not in their, their parents or their family or their church attendance or any other good work? But may they trust in you alone. You give them faith to believe and perseverance to follow you to the very end. God, we thank you that we can trust you in all these things. Help us to live in light of this. Help us to honor and glorify you this week. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.